You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode for a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, in fact, I lived in the, the National Capital Region out there in Gaithersburg and in Shady Grove area. And so I get to, to have the, the awesome opportunity to talk about what it's like to, to work out there with um, the Director of Emergency Management and Homeland Security, Dr. Earl Stoddard. The guy is phenomenal. He has tons of experience. Like I said, the doctor. So he can provide a lot of experience for us and, and, and stories of what he's doing out there with Montgomery County, Maryland. He's the director there. And honestly, just understanding those complexities of working within the National Capital Region. He also has a background in public health. He understands those complexities. And so, oh my gosh, like talk about the, the perfect man for the role in a pandemic for that county. So uh, Dr. Sauter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about some of your background real quick, because uh, I, I was really tempted actually to read your uh, your description of uh, Montgomery County just from LinkedIn, because it was so well written and, and really articulated of like those roles that you do. But instead of just me reading off of the sheet, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're focusing right now on your job? Yeah, so we're, you know, we have a comprehensive emergency management program. Uh, we're, we're focused on not just you know, mitigating, preventing disasters, responding to them and recovery, but also trying to use some cutting edge analytics and, and science-based approaches to emergency management and how we can actually improve how we do how we do business. Um, uh, obviously, everything that we do is based on relationships, so we try and build strong partnerships. That's true in the National Capital Region, especially given just the diversity of different partners that we have here, federal, state, and local. And, uh, across, you know, we have a commonwealth, a district, and a state working close, you know, close coordination with one another. 
And so obviously in, in, in Montgomery County, we're focused on really trying to be leaders on many issues. Right now, one of the big things that we're starting to look at, you know, we obviously got COVID going on, but uh, climate change is going to be a big thing for our future and understanding exactly what that will mean for how we mitigate and respond to events that, that may be shifting. And what using historical data is now, you know, we're, we're questioning whether that historical data is an accurate reflection of the threats that we're going to face in the future. Mm. And so we're really trying to get and understand how climate adaptation is going to influence how we do business in the future and what we need to be doing to be ahead of that uh, over a longer period of time. So that's a good sort of intro. Um, obviously, I, I said partners, um, you know, we, we don't do what we, can, we do without building strong relationships. And so we're really trying to focus on making sure that our uh, local marriage preparedness council, LAPC, is, is strong. Our hospital coalition is strong, building those relationships out. And so really it's a different challenge every day in the national capital region. I know that's true for most emergency managers across the, across the country. Right. It's certainly no different here in, in Maryland. Uh, that's a great introduction. So when I was with the National Cancer Institute, the headquarters is in Shady Grove. And I went to an established... Uh, quite a bit of, um, I, I want to say quite a bit of relationships. That's not, doesn't really make sense, but I, I went over to Montgomery County all the time for trainings and, and working with those groups. Um, I did, um, you know, cert, uh, community emergency response team training I, I, as a, an instructor with uh, Montgomery County. And so I was really impressed and this was several years ago. In fact, I was looking over our timelines. You became the director right as I was leaving Montgomery County. So we had a, like a six month overlap where I would have been going to the, um, the offices there, but uh, I was really impressed with like everything that I was doing. Like, so you're talking about analytics and, and working with uh, and that collaboration with those different groups. And I remember thinking, okay, like Montgomery County doesn't hit like the baseline for cert. Like there was an extra 10 hours that it added for training, for example. And um, as a GIS guy, geospatial intelligence is like my kind of like my my shtick, right? Like I I like adding data to emergency management. I think that's where it needs to go. And then you're talking about climate adaptation, like that's going to be the buzzword this year, especially the next four years with, um, you know, Administrator Chriswell. And so, like talking about hitting on all pistons there, of like knowing what you should be focusing on, and um, and diving into that. Let's talk about some of the um, some mitigation efforts that you're doing um, in Montgomery County. So, if you're identifying through analytics, how are you removing opinion-based analysis from the process? Yeah, so we've been really doing some, um, trying to do climate projection, number one, and, and try, try to understand just, you know, how, how we extrapolate some of the more recent changes we've seen and what those will look like in 50, 100, and, and 200 years. So we've actually, we, we actually have a county climate plan that actually is just being announced uh, this, you know, over the next, just right now it's been released for comments. And we did a section in that plan focused on climate adaptation where we try and do some data analytics of, you know, not just what's the flood hazard today, what's it going to be in the future, and then understanding how we can invest our, um, you know, whether it be has mitigation dollars or uh, or county resources on addressing long-term uh, flood resiliency. And we're not thinking just about infrastructure. We're thinking about, like, how can we use natural environment to as a hazard mitigation technique? And so, obviously, we know that, you know, trees can prevent, you know, landslides and other things like, you know, uh, uh, land subsidence. But they also can help with flooding a great deal if they're if they're properly maintained in the right kind of um, right kind of a forest in really right kinds of areas. And we're really looking at how we do schemes like that, which you know, obviously getting forests rebuilt or or, or getting uh, 
uh, stream bank restoration is one of those things that we don't often think about, but those have long-term consequences if they're if they're poorly maintained in how your drainage infrastructure will respond to all those things. And so we're trying to really look at a holistic um, uh, across the board uh, intersection of built environment with natural environment and how we can use natural environment to save us resources on the built environment, but also reduce long-term risk. So one of the big things that we're looking at is in areas where we've seen a lot, a huge increase in, in the built environment, trying to understand exactly what implications that's having on our flood, floodplain management, not just within our traditional floodplains, but as we see increases in nuisance flooding or urban flooding, uh, how, how that's being influenced and how we can use natural landscapes to try and reduce some of those, some of those risks. Very and cool. so, yeah, we're looking at, you know, urban tree canopy and all these other things that I think, you know, we as a feeler are, you know, some people have been working on this for a long time. Obviously, we're really trying to integrate with our environmental folks to, to really understand how, how these concepts play into our mitigation role. And that's sort of a big area of focus. Gosh, you just, you're, man, there's so much I want to talk about there, but you just described uh, why you are a doctor, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you just, hey, this is all the stuff we're working on. It's all about data. So, um, 2011 tsunami hit Japan. I was involved in that response, uh, really close to my heart, actually, because um, I was uh, very, very heavily involved. And uh, Japan had the same thought process. How do you use natural landscapes to mitigate disaster? They already have the most amazing building codes in the world. So what do you do now? And um, they they were looking at um, basically it was a, a thousand year old a wall that they were able to see, say, okay, here's where water went to last time. And um, they could tell that, you know, over a period of a thousand years, people moved closer and closer to the coast. And, um, you know, that talk about a phenomenal research, um, d- that alone. Um, so they took that thought process of, okay, here's was a man-made thing of like how to prevent um, in- inland flooding uh, from the tsunami. So they, they created a, what they're calling a thousand year product to basically build a mountain to absorb both the water. And if people know anything about tsunamis, you know, when a tsunami officially hits from the from an earthquake, it's moving at 450 miles an hour and it slows down to 150 miles an hour by the time it hits the hits the ghost. So a wall's not going to do anything. So like building that that landlady uh, that 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 mountain and then that caused me to do a quite a bit of research with Holland um, who has mitigated pretty much every flooding event that you could possibly imagine, whether it's riverine flooding or flash flooding, and they use natural resources to do that, whether it's um, you know pl- uh, vegetation or just understanding how waterways work and working with those waterways instead of against those waterways. So I think that's phenomenal that you guys are you're really focusing on that. Um, one of my problems... Well, yeah, yeah. I really want to mention, too, I think the, the really beautiful thing, too, is that you can be using natural environments as far as adaptation, but also they're really good at sequestering carbon. And so if you're looking to reduce the future risk of climate change, you can also concurrently be reducing, you know, doing, doing adaptation concurrently with mitigating actual climate damp harm, you know, reducing carbon footprint by having the same surfaces that you're using to mitigate the risk also be sequestering carbon and reducing the carbon in the air and therefore reducing, you know, the urban heat, you know, heat islands and other things like that. So it's really, there's some really great synergy that can exist between the environmental side of, of the world, whether it's really looking at, you know, preserving and protecting our, our, our planet with the emergency management side where we're trying to mitigate from future harm from disaster. Yeah, that's, 
those are really good calls. In fact, um, this is a, kind of a plug for uh, a good buddy of mine uh, up there in SUNY, the State Universities of New York. Uh, he came onto the show, uh, Jason Cradiville, who's the interim director there, and they're focusing on that a lot. They're, they're using um, advanced analytics and uh, um, deep analytics, really, to understand climate adaptation and uh, better weather predicting. Um, so big shout out to what they're doing up there. Um, but you're talking about analytics, and as an analytics guy, that you're, again, checking all the boxes here. But what I have found going around the country is when I work with other people, um, we have a big range of competency within our field. And not everybody is a data scientist, and not everybody understands you know, even a SQL query, which is a really basic thing for me, but for somebody else, that's like, you know, foreign language. So how do you work within that system? If that's what you're trying to do in the county, but you still want to bring on people with expertise who do not have that background, how do you work within that system? Well, I think, I mean, this is all about building diversity. And then, you know, obviously, even for people who uh, come from like a fire or a, a police law enforcement background, it's, it's the fact that, that as they come into emergency management, you have to have people who are viewing the way we show, which is we're all constantly learning. And so you can have you have, you know, people who don't have the police and traditional emergency response background come in. We, we have people in our, in our, on our staff who are lawyers, who are meteorologists, people who are you know, GIS specialists. And we try and bring them in and integrate them into teams of people who have traditional emergency response, traditional um you know, law enforcement backgrounds, and we have them work uh, cooperatively on projects because they both bring perspectives that I think are helpful in all the things that we deal with. Uh, and so I think it's all about, you know, you, you've got to have staff and, and, and people and partners who are willing to learn and be uncomfortable mm. being outside their comfort zones. Like they, they have to be learned to be uncomfortable and, and be okay with that and, and, and be constantly learning. But I think you have to integrate some, some people who just, don't think like you and try and get all perspectives. We really try to build like tiger teams or, or joint teams where different members of the team have different levels of expertise and different backgrounds because it really feels like we get better products because they're looking at things from a different perspective. And so it's really about, you know, we know that not everyone's going to have a hard analytics background. That's fine. We don't want everyone to have a hard analytics background because in some cases those people are missed the operational side of things. And so we really want people to have, we want to form teams that have different uh, expertise. They're learning from other people on the team so that they're better for the, for the next project, the next project, the next project. But at the same time, they're coming from with a perspective that allows for things to be more thoroughly vetted before they are released. You, that, you made me chuckle there for a second because uh, you're talking about like GISers possibly not understanding operations. I went from... National Cancer Institute, Emergency Operations, and Emergency Planning to a GIS role. I was uh, I was a GIS unit leader on the national team uh, for FEMA, and uh, uh, it was like night and day talking to people with uh, operations background because I spoke that language, but GIS people don't. And so they, I'd be in a conversation, they'd be saying the exact same thing, and they meant you know totally two different things. And the ops guy was like, I don't care how pretty your map is. I just want something now. And the GIS responds with, I don't make maps. I do analytics. And so it's like, oh my gosh, guys, just, just get the job done. And so like I fought that constantly. And so m my thing was, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I did this last episode too. I don't, I don't usually mean to do this, but um, with Futurity IT, 
like going around the country and a GIS guy and like liking analytics so much and understanding that process is great. But most people don't have the time to do that. They, they want something now. They want something super intuitive. So like GIS, like, so if you, if you have a big GIS team who understands how to do queries and you have, you want to do analytics like all the time and you have a lot of time to do that. Great. Uh, there's, there's products out there that are able to do that. But what they did is they said, here's everything you need to do in a blue sky or a gray sky operation, especially with like damage assessments. I think that's what we call out on the, on the ad. And they like, if you're a planning specialist, if you have a fire background, or if you're a GIS -er, you can do it and you can do it. You can learn it in 10 seconds and it integrates with WebEOC. It's like, I'm a huge fan of it because I would get out there and it'd just be so frustrating. These counties be like, I can't understand your really expensive GIS stuff. So I'm just going to send you literally a notepad with my addresses on there. And then we would, we would have to get an intern to type that in for hours, you know, like can't do that in a disaster. So something intuitive is, is really huge. I think that's kind of the, the name of the game right now. If, if any tech company out there, and I'm, I'm not a tech company, I do endorse that kind of stuff. But if, if companies can figure out how to make it intuitive and accurate so that anybody in the field can use it at any time, that is a huge win right now for our field because we need to push more to the analytics. It has to be durable enough to, like you said, disaster tough. It's got to hold up in the field environment too, where, you know, I think that's the big part of this too, is that, you know, um, you're not going to have all the clean data sets that you're going to want to have and have the months of data acquisition process that you'd really want to have to have analyze to, to do deep analysis sometimes, but you're going to need some systems that allow you to do a, a, a quicker and a dirtier uh, version of your analysis to give you some operational um, information to, to act accordingly. So it's sort of a, that's like, you know, it's got, you've got to balance things out. Um, yeah. We don't, you know, we don't have the luxury many times in responding to disasters of, you know, um, taking the time we would like to analyze a problem fully before we make a decision that that's, that's not the way our world works. Absolutely. So I want to I want to ask you a couple of things you've said though, because uh, just backing up here a little bit, you know, we have uh, really grateful for our audience, especially those uh, new emergency managers who reach out to us and ask for advice. And I, I actually love getting that. So if anybody wants to reach out, of course you can always do that. Um, but what you said a little while ago about diversity and working with different peoples with different level of understanding, and then you have to operate within that. Like if you if you got your first EM job and then day one was pandemic, um, or day one was hurricane, uh, could you provide some uh, uh, advice as a leader? If I was going to be working in Nevada, for you know Florida, Montgomery County, wherever, and I was new emergency manager day one, you know how do you make sure that you're successful because you can't bring everything to the table? You don't have that that knowledge or experience. Yeah, so I think there's a few things that I think are really super important whenever you're thinking about if you're thinking about becoming a emergency manager, if you just become one. Uh, first off, number one, relationships are everything. So whenever, like, if you're not good with names, write, take notes. Because if you meet people, you should, like, they're going to have resources or information that you're going to want at some point, and you better be prepared to reach back out to them at some point. So a lot of, of everything that we do is relationships. Um, I, I don't know of an emergency management office that has all the resources it could possibly need to respond to an emergency. They always rely on other people. So for, that's first and foremost. So you better be comfortable. You got to get comfortable talking to people that you just meet, learning what they learning what they bring to the table, uh, and, and what what 
you know, what you can also offer them. It's not, it's about a partnership. That, that's the second piece of it. Number one, always learn to look at a problem, not just from the perspective that you're trying to address, but looking at it from the perspective of the partner who you're asking to help you. What, is, what, what do they gain out of this process? What, what do you have to bring to them? It, it's a partnership. It's, it's a team. Don't be looking at what can you do for me in all cases. That's a big thing. That's huge. And yeah. One of the big things I was, yeah, sorry, no, no, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the big thing I always tell people is, and this is going to sound strange. If you're afraid to get fired, you're probably not going to be a good right emergency manager. Mm. You've got to be willing to That's put so out the best advice that you can, even if it's going to be hard for your elected officials or your, or whoever you report to to hear, um, you're not going to always give them easy answers or good choices. There are sometimes where you're making people choose between bad choices. But if you want to be great at, at this job, and I'm not even saying I'm, I'm the greatest ever, but you know, I learned pretty early on that you've got to be willing to commit to doing the right thing, even if it's hard. And um, that's something that a lot of people are really afraid to do sometimes because they're afraid, uh, you know, that they're going to be, you know, people don't like hearing bad news. They don't No, no one does. That's not, you know, but I think we've got to be, we've got to become honest brokers of the truth and honest brokers of, of the reality of what's going on in front of us and say, you know, we're not people, you know, you have to be able to say, we're not people doing X, Y, and Z you've asked for unless we get this other resource to do it uh, and be very transparent and, and um, direct about what the, what the situation that you're facing is, why you're facing it and what can be done to address it. And, um, you know, a lot of people try and sugarcoat things or, you know, maybe I, maybe I can obfuscate or, or cover up this, this bad thing that's happening and solve it on the back end. It almost never works out that way. You almost always wait, make it worse by, by waiting to try and see if you get through out some other way. So, and then when it gets worse, you have to, you, when it gets worse, you have to own up to the, even, even the, the worst thing than the initial, the yep. initial problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, people call it tough skin. I, I don't, I think that's a wrong. You know, I, disaster tough. By the way, thank you for calling that out. Uh, you're the man for that. Um, but um, it's not tough skin. So for me, um, like I, I like I call it white knight, like ethical, moral, logical truth. Like that's that's our realm. And as long as an emergency manager st- stays in that realm, you become extremely effective. People trust you. Um, when you start going to gray or trying to justify or trying to like, you know, push it off or whatever, try to find ways to overcome your mistakes or, um, blame it on other people, which is the worst thing you can possibly do. Um, you, you lose that credibility and you most likely will get fired. But I, I will tell you that there is a part of me that obviously, you know, we're doing the show is a great example of that. Like I don't get nervous to talk to anybody especially if they have more experience than me because I, I want to learn and I look at it from a learning perspective. Uh, but at the same time, when there's really hard calls, uh, I think there's a tendency for people to um, just to say, I'll do it no matter what, or, uh, you know, to, to try to boost themselves up more. And I think despite that fear, I think it was, I've done well in my career, try not to boost myself up too much by just being like straightforward. Uh, yeah, I'll do that. No, I won't do that. But that doesn't change how I felt inside about the moment. You know, I'll have that anxiety. I'll have that like that that tension for like twelve hours when I think they really care, and then they didn't really care. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's no big deal. But um, yeah, I think from hearing that from a leadership perspective, I think that's really good for emergency managers to hear because 
Uh, if you want to propel yourself in your career, you're going to have to do that. That's the reality. You have to be able to go to leadership and say no, yes, or option B, and this is why. And if they go with your option, you have to be really great with that. And if they don't go with your option, you're going to have to be okay with that as well. And, and that's where that like loyalty piece comes in. But um, yeah, really good call outs there. So let's talk about Montgomery County specifically then. Um, what keeps you up at night with Montgomery County? So we're just for I think everyone listening across, and there's a lot of Montgomery counties across the country. We're, we've got about a little over a million people uh, in about a 500 square mile area. Uh, just uh, north of the District of Columbia, um, we uh, I sort of you know share via via our river border borders with Virginia and the district. Obviously, we also you know report back up to uh, or across to Annapolis, our state government, um, and so um, yeah. So I mean, obviously, there's some there's some cutting edge risks and threats that are there's sort of um, out there, and there's also sort of the bread and butter things that we worry about. Now, the climate change we talked a lot about, I won't go into that. That's one of the most preeminent things that we're dealing with now. Um, the other thing is, in our region, uh, so much of our systems are automated that cybersecurity is a massive uh, risk that we have to deal with. We have a lot of federal infrastructure here. Um, we have a lot of, um, you know, federal, both critical and sort of just, um, you know, high impact. Uh, infrastructure. Um, we obviously have a metro system that is shared across the entire district. We have multiple metro stations in our county that, you know, are obviously threats from a homeland security perspective. And then, you know, I think we've seen this over the last, you know, certainly coming weeks with what we dealt with at the Capitol building is, you know, the, the risks of uh, homegrown uh, violent extremism and just how we, you know, we have a very you know, we're, we're very accustomed to protesting in the national capital region, but obviously when those protests turn, turn, turn violent, uh, it, it, you know, that's something that we, um, we view as a, as a risk moving forward. Um, you know, we, we, in Montgomery County, some of our law enforcement officers were the first on scene helping to clear the Capitol building from on January 6th. And so we just know that we're in sort of a complex, uh, often political environment that uh, poses some additional challenges for us um, that extend, you know, as part of our partnership with the district in Northern Virginia, but also specifically to Montgomery County. And so when I say, yeah, but there's a, you know, I've now I've mentioned cybersecurity as a homeland security threat, uh, you know, homegrown extremism, climate change. So we, we kind of run the gamut. Um, <laughs> we don't have the same, you know, interestingly, we don't have the same hazards as many of our you know, colleagues across the country would have in terms of like, we have a pretty low tornado risk. We have a very low earthquake risk. Um, but, um, you know, we have a diversity of, of um, medium risks that can become high risk pretty quickly. Mm. And, and very few of them are historically predictable. And um, I think that's really where some of our biggest challenges lie. Do you feel that if something happened, um, something major, now, of course, what happened at the Capitol was major. In fact, um, I take a pretty hard a hard line on that one. I always tell people, if you want to protest, whatever you want, if you want to walk down the street and, and scream that unicorns are real, whatever. Uh, but as soon as that becomes violent in any way, people, property, continuity of operations, uh, you've now crossed a line in my book. And especially when you bring in the flag of the en enemy of the United States, a Confederate flag inside a U.S. Capitol, 
you're done in my book. So um, that's kind of my thought process there. But um, when I talk about something major, like if we're talking like Black Swan event or another 9-11 event or something where people have to evacuate um, that belt. So for, for people who don't know, there's a, there's a major highway that surrounds um, D.C. And, and basically the thought process originally, if I recall correctly, um, was that if there was a blast at the White House, then um, that would be the blast radius. And obviously that's what's way off now. Um, but do you think about that from a receiving survivor standpoint and like counterflow? Like how does that work in Montgomery County? Yeah, so the short answer is yes. We think a lot about that. Um, we think a lot about you know what happens in you know in supporting our our neighbors to the south and how we what we what kinds of residents we would receive. And I think one of the big challenges that we have is that you know we think about the Beltway, which you're referring to, is around around the capital uh, around the around the district. But a lot of the throughways that come into Montgomery County are really right in the neighborhood. And so we're not even talking about major thoroughfares when you talk about coming through like Chevy Chase in, in Southern Montgomery County and some of the borders that we have with DC are very, they're very like you're on one street, you're in Montgomery County, you're on the next street, you're in a neighborhood in, 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 uh, in, in the district. And so mm. it, it poses a lot of challenges because if you have an evacuation of the district, it's not going to be, you know, a clean counterflow on one of our major highways that's going to be some of the major ways that people get out of the district. Um, and um, they're really spilling into um, neighborhood streets, you know, one lane each way kind of streets. And so those, you know, with, with the intersections and all those things, those are very, very hard to counterflow. And so we thought we've done a lot of analysis on with our partners, the state, um, state of Maryland, uh, just to understand what counterflow looks like, what our rate is. And the reality is that, you know, one of the things that we talk about is um, we don't have the kind of mega facilities in the county to do mass care for a large scale evacuation of the district. So in a lot of cases, we're taking some of the immediate, you know, uh, displaced people, but we're also shuttling them up north to our, you know, neighbors to the north in Frederick and elsewhere. And so um, we really have to work at the state state level because we don't have, um, you know, we don't have a, a large, our largest mass care facility in Montgomery County is, is really our soccer plex, which is about 2,000 people in total. And that's just not enough, which we don't have enough facilities of that size, even using our high schools and recreation centers and all that to, to house all the, all the people that may be displaced in the district. So it's a really complex problem for us. Uh, we spend a lot of time on mass care, a lot of time, really close partnership between our uh, Health and Human Services Department who leads uh, ESF6, but also we have we have people assigned to that from Emergency Magic because it's just a, such a high priority for us. We're fortunate that the Red Cross in the National Capital Region is, is number one, they receive uh, Urban Area Security Initiative dollars directly from the region to mm-hmm. you know keep good caches. Uh, they're also a very good partner with us. Um, and so it gives us some additional capabilities that maybe some other jurisdictions might not have, but it's just a complex problem because we know that people are going to be going north, south, and, you know, across bridges into neighborhoods. It's just a really complex problem. for us. Yeah. Living out there myself, um, it is, it is built out. Like anytime they build more townhomes, I'm like, how did you find space for these townhomes? Um, and so that's kind of a call out too with, um, emergency management and urban planning. Now I do want to, I, I, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, before we end to talk about kind of your public health background, but, uh, and your perspective there. But 
where do you think the intersection between urban planning and emergency management is? Uh, Brock Long talked about, uh, I believe it was Brock Long, um, who talked about, uh, and Todd DeVoe, actually. Gosh, this is another episode where I brought, talk about Todd DeVoe. He's like the greatest. But um, they talked about how when you're buying a home, you should have an emergency manager assist with buying that home to make sure that you've make, mitigated but urban planning and emergency management, I feel like, has a really strong intersection, but we don't really talk about it very much. Yeah, we, we're talking about it quite a bit. We're actually in the process of trying to bring on a hydrologist to work with our urban planning. The hydrologist will be hired in emergency management, and we'll work with with our urban planning folks to really do not just you know um, you know thinking about what how we will approve different building projects, but really think about outgrowth and what's our long term strategy. Um, in terms of community planning and where should we have things and how, how do we worry about density and all those things. And so, you know, thinking about our water, you know, our water risk is one of our more, from a, from a natural hazard perspective, one of our more um, eminent risks um, that in drought, which obviously hydrologists can help with a bit too. But, um, you know, we're, this is an area where we are really trying to push our way into, um, I won't say where, where we need to be in terms of having our engagement in the planning planning sections, but this has been an area of, of great focus over the last three or four years to try and get more integrated into just how we do um, community planning at a, at not just the micro level, but at the macro level, long term, like where we're going to build schools and where we're going to build infrastructure. Um, we're pretty fortunate that people made some really good decisions uh, in the 60s in Montgomery County where we, we can't build most uh, county-owned and operated property inside flood zones. And so that, you know, somebody made a pretty smart decision somewhat to what the federal government made uh, years ago. And so we've sort of, that's protected the county assets, but we know that we have a lot of um, privately owned assets, residential assets that are uh, in, some, in some challenging spaces. So, you know, we definitely need to be more involved with I'll tell you right now, we're, you know, in the northern part of the Montgomery County, we're really starting to build out the Clarksburg area. Um, seeing a lot more building of residential, and we're already seeing some urban flooding in those areas because even when the plans were written for some of those areas, our weather patterns have shifted, mm. and the intersection of the built environment has already shown us that places that we're currently developing have different um, uh, water dynamics than we planned for a decade ago and um, you know it's illustrating I think to the to the powers that be the elected officials particularly that we need more engagement on these long-term hazards and, and uh, for, for how we design that's um that's exactly what I've been trying to focus on like from like the Doberman emergency management perspective again for those who don't know I, I have a, a small business where I kind of uh, assist uh, with local and um commercial enterprises who are trying to look at emergency management. And my whole thing is like outlook. And uh, I really liked what Craig Fugate said when he said, insurance companies are not using floodplains anymore to, um, to tell you your risk. And it's really becoming very difficult. And I don't even just look at climate adaptation as the, the flood risk. I look at disease like Lyme disease is um, definitely increasing more north and more north. Um, I was in Iceland a couple years ago. And we were talking to um, the locals there, and they were like, "We're we're seeing, we're seeing things here that we've never seen before. Like it just doesn't make sense." And they, uh, and so like, there is definitely changes happening. Mosquito population. We're seeing different mosquito populations in Montgomery County than we were seeing, you know, 20, 30 years ago. 
the slow, slow, you know, slow spread of the eighties from the eighties, uh, um, mosquitoes north and make obviously carry, carry different variants depending on, you know, if they these just die versus the albopictus that we're commonly, you know, talk about when we talk about like Zika and other, other, so it, it's definitely a complex, um, impact from just, you know, a shift in climate. I was seeing um, a report, I read a report by, it was um, Google actually was, I think, leading the charts there, where they were, um, they, they grew male uh, mosquitoes, or they harvested male mosquitoes and created large populations where those mosquitoes only eat other mosquitoes, or and or uh, they eat other mosquitoes and another variant where uh, they can't produce. And so um, they, they released this in Burbank, California, and they just decimated the the uh, the population there because um, you, you release a million mosquitoes that uh, attack other mosquitoes or that can't reproduce, and all of a sudden you don't have generations of mosquitoes. And so I think we're going to have to start thinking more and more outside the box of like that, um, where we're trying to attack these um, these uh, these problems. Um, you know, as a guy who traveled for a job, this was during like the Zika thing. Um, 2017, Zika was really big, and Puerto Rico happened, and Virgin Islands, and I was like, "Oh, we're trying to have a kid. Like, do I really want to get deployed there?" And so, like, emergency managers do think about that. I thought about it. Of course, I'm going to do my job, but uh, it's definitely something to think about. And what you're talking about is this is kind of a good segue, actually, is more into that public health perspective. There's a do- science side, which you were talking about, but then we have a messaging problem that we've been dealing with for a year. And so can you talk about, from an emergency management, public health perspective, understanding threats there, what you would like to see in 2021 with emergency managers around the country as they address or, and continue to address public health? I think we have a really big uh, issue with how we communicate sometimes with our health department partners. And the way they, and this goes back to what I said, something I said earlier, where you've got to understand their perspective and your perspective. And, you know, we've, we've got a really great uh, health human services department in Montgomery County. They're doing great work with uh, COVID-19 response. Um, but really, really great. But, you know, sometimes we talk on different timescales. When you, when you talk about public health, you're also talking about they're doing population level analyses that, you know, are thinking about it over a pro- protracted amount of time where you really got to think about like a small change made has a big change 10 to 15 years later. They're less, they're less used to operating in the emergency. We have to make a decision today or in the next 10 minutes, let alone, you know, you know, there's a, there's a real propensity to really want to analyze a problem because that's what they do in, in making small changes like fluoride and water has a great long-term impact on uh, dental caries. And that's the kind of thing that they're often thinking about. But sometimes you're talking about, a more immediate threat. And I think it's really a, a incumbent upon emergency managers to think, uh, to understand how their um, their counterparts in their health departments are thinking and partner with them. Really, core events is the way to do it because you've got to have that strong relationship and strong understanding of how things are going to operate. Otherwise, things are just going to be unseemly. Um, and we're seeing that in certain, certain of our, um, you know, from neighboring jurisdictions on occasion. Where we've had a strong relationship with our health. I actually have a health planner in my office from Emergency Management who works specifically, they're assigned more or less to work with our with our health partners on all the issues they deal with. And it's just so important to like just 
to have that perspective and have that long-term relationship built when you talk about these public health events. And just understand that they're looking at them over over a much longer time frame than we're typically thinking about most of our responses. Okay, so I'm an emergency manager. I just heard you and said, okay, I need to understand. It's all about relationships. That's kind of the theme here and uh, working with different groups with different perspectives, which I really like. Um, we haven't talked about that too much, which is great. Um, I like to say emergency management is a misnomer, right? It's about emergency coordination. A great emergency manager is a great emergency coordinator and understanding those perspectives. So I'm an emergency manager. I just heard what you had to say. Um, 2021 and beyond, how do I address public health uh, not just working with the par- partners, but what do you, what do you want to see right now? Especially with the vaccine starting to roll out, there's a lot of complications with the vaccine rollout. How do you do that? How do you prioritize most effective? And what do you think the lessons learned for emergency managers are going to be? Yeah, so I think to to figure out where your niche is going to be in a response like this, if you're so like we're doing a lot of uh, logistics support, and we've actually brought in our fire department personnel. They're really great at NIMS and ICS to really help our public health folks uh, in, in delivery of execution of clinics. There, you know, so I think it's been a lot of lessons learned that have been provided across from those organizations. But just figure out, really it's about an assessment of where the strengths and weaknesses of your emergency manager program are relative to what the strengths and weaknesses of the health department's programming is. And so I think it's really figure out exactly what those strengths and weaknesses are. And then, you know, I, I, you know we're going to get out of this COVID-19 I'm hopeful that in the future, we're going to do more joint emergency management, health-focused exercises. I think they're really good and instructive from, for, for other, other issues that are complex because of that, that departmental interplay. Um, one thing that we had done before H1N1, and I think it really helped us, is we were actually in, involved in some of those. We were utilizing NIMS and ICS in some of the flu clinics that we do for annual flu clinics. It gets people practice. It integrates the emergency management and the health side on a more regular basis. I, I knew the names of, you know, people who were in the health delivery side, not just the, you know, the public health emergency planner, but like the actual nurses who may be um, managing sites. And so I think that kind of experience is really valuable when you get to these health emergencies. And so I think we do it, we do it for like, you know, when there's a, you know, large scale, scale fires and we work with our fire, fire department colleagues pretty regularly on things like that. But I think we don't do it as much for these health-based events. And just figure out something that they're doing on a regular basis that you could try and come in and help them do. I think is a big is a big way forward to building stronger um, partnerships with with public health. There's always a way to be a plus one, not getting in the way, and understanding your role within that. Um, if you if you have a certain background, like you. It's not the time to prove that background. It's the time to say, here's a gap and I can help you fill that gap and being a, a relief to that system. So that's so that's so huge. I found that a lot going around the country. Um, the most successful people were the ones who were able to fill a gap, um, put a plug. Be a value. Yeah. Be a value. I mean, it's really, you know, if you don't have a strong relationship with your, with your public health department, the best way to start doing something like that is, like you said, be a plus one. Do something small for them that takes something off their plate it doesn't look like you're trying to come in and sort of usurp their their role in this. They're the ESF eight lead in most most organizations. So, you know, come in and say, you know, hey, we can help you with this transportation element, or we can we can we can move the vaccine around for you. And and they're like, okay, well, you can do that. And then it builds confidence. You can slowly build up that relationship 
into something more 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 meaningful in terms of you know what the role of, of uh, the emergency manager is, and not just the emergency manager. The emergency manager is often the gateway to a lot of other county, municipal, or, or state resources, depending on your level. And so, if you're bringing in the law enforcement partners to, to provide site security, if you're bringing in transportation folks to get people to the clinic, so, you know, it, it, you can add you can add value where you know when you add value that builds confidence, and that's sort of a reinforcing circle. And so, you know, you start with just adding a little bit of value and it may seem small, but it builds and it, and it comes back to you. There's also no such thing as a demeaning task. Rodney Melsick, my mentor, and obviously the, the most experienced emergency planner in the world for the last 40 years. I mean, he's trained thousands of emergency managers, and he's on the strike team for 20 years. The guy is just amazing, and I'm, I'm really lucky to have worked for him. Uh, he said that during the Ebola uh, response, the team got deployed out there and he was getting food for the doctors. That's what he did. He got food for the doctors at CDC. And um, like that guy could have easily said, like, that's way below me. You should be going to me for advice. I know how to do this. And yet he, he found a gap that was stressing, right? Like being able to function, hey, I'm going to help you be able to function. So. Uh, and and building from there and, and building that trust. Hey, hey, what do you do? Oh, yeah, I'm an emergency planner. Oh, what does that even mean? And like having those conversations and and like collaborating with people and finding out what they do. You you were saying that earlier. That is such a huge call out. And in fact, that's probably a really good uh, way to end the show. Is just like that reminder to everybody is it's all about trying to stop the disaster as fast as humanly possible and and to build those relationships, especially if you can build it before the disaster. A public health uh, event is a slow onset disaster. It is not immediate onset. You have to learn what it's like in, an, in a slow onset disaster, who your partners are, and, and work through those systems. And you will you will go further in your career by doing that, filling gaps, helping out. Not it's not about pride. And then you get to to be the the big dog eventually, like Doctor Stoddard, and making the big calls. So. Again, Dr. Stardust, thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking to me and, and explaining those complexities. That's it's really important for us. Thanks, Dr. Thanks for having me. I'm certainly glad that people are, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously you're trying to learn, which is a big part of being being an emergency manager. So I'm glad, I'm glad to be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's becoming kind of this research lab. We actually had a, a couple uh, universities reach out and said that could they use the material from the show and, and their in their education. So I thought that was really cool. And um, obviously, we're, we're probably going to want to get you to get back on the show just because uh, you talked about so many different topics that I find fascinating myself. And so I uh, want to learn from you more. If you like this episode, if you want to hear more from Dr. Earl Stoddard, the man, please give us that five-star rating. Make sure you subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Disaster Tough Podcast. And come back next week. Thanks. <laughs>